Oh, uh, Kathy reminded me that uh, the one announcement I didn't make is that tomorrow night is my Dharma and Recovery class here. So it's my monthly class here, the second Friday of each month. It kind of snuck up on me. Um, it was kind of a busy week. My wife had her birthday, and then I have my birthday next week. And so, um, and then I've been teaching you this elementary school, and uh, and then teaching here, and and then I have to keep my golf game up. So you know, it's a busy. <laughs> so a good place to start is where um, is it? Casson is that? Just ask me about faith and uh, you know is and and the last thing she was talking about that I think is almost a good place to start is the you know the Buddha in the Kalama Sutta saying that you know, we shouldn't believe something just because somebody tells us or because we read it or because uh, the you know, the guru said it. Um, so let me go back to uh, the word that we translate as faith, because uh, sometimes it helps us to understand uh, a teaching, particularly some of the Buddhist teachings, because we're, you know, we're translating across time and across culture, and it's very tricky. Uh, and, and a lot of the, the work now, uh, the translation work, is very, very important that's happening uh, with the ancient texts. In any case, the word that we translate as faith is sada, S-A-D-H-A. And many people say that it's, um, it's more accurately means something like confidence or trust. In our culture, we tend to equate the words faith and belief. So I- implying that um, you you uh, are firmly set in a belief in some dogma or some principle that this is absolutely true. Um, and it's kind of a mental thing. You know, I believe that to be a fact. And in Buddhism, faith isn't seen that way nearly so much. as It's seen more as an energy or a force which we use as a support to our spiritual development, and that <coughs> develops along with our practice. It's not that we take on the belief, okay, I believe everything about Buddhism, or I believe everything about the 12 steps, and now I have to live that. It's rather that we just need enough trust or confidence to do the next thing. So, you, so my understanding is that you need a certain amount of faith to show up at Spirit Rock for the first night of the Buddhism 12-step class. Okay? It's not that you believe, oh, this class is going to transform my life because Kevin Griffin is an enlightened guru and we're all going to, you know, it's just going to solve all my problems. It's, it, it's more like, oh, this might be helpful. Uh, I think, I think it, it, sounded, it touches something in me, this idea Buddhism, the 12 steps, I think, I think I'll show up there. So I have that much faith to just show up. And then I get here, and, and Kevin says, try this and try this. Okay, I'll try meditating, or I'll you know, read this book, or I'll, you know, keep, I'll keep showing up week after week. And then our commitment and our 
and our uh, actions go along and all everything develops along with the faith. So people who become a monk, which to me becoming a monastic, a monk or a nun in the Buddhist tradition is sort of the ultimate expression of commitment and faith uh, that you really believe in this and you want to live this life fully. They don't get there like A to Z. You know, it's a, it's a progression of practice and study, and after a while, you know, you're getting more and more inspired, and then thinking, wow, I really want to do this wholeheartedly. And so, or even to just move from this hall to the hall up the hill, to go in a retreat, takes a certain amount of faith. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, does that feel comfortable with what you were saying? Yeah. In terms of your own? I guess it's more how to interpret the word. Yeah. yeah this okay. Good. Thank you. I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, you know, we run into the same problem, in a, probably in a bigger way, with the word God, which is really probably the topic of tonight, let's say. Um, and um, as I've said, you know, this, this book, A Burning Desire, it, I set out to write a book that was about how the Dharma could be seen as a power, and how that would uh, connect to each of the steps that mentions God. So I kind of set up this structure or parameters of what I was going to say in the book. So there's six steps, six of the twelve, that either say power or higher power or God. Or he. <laughs> and so, so, but about halfway through the book, uh, through writing the book, I realized that what I was talking about kept coming back to the idea of turning your will and your life over to the power of God, which is step three. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. I think I just said that wrong a minute ago, but anyway. That, so I realized that that was the crux of what this book is about. So whatever I'm going to talk about tonight is going to be partial and distillation of what's in this book. So, if you want to know more, steal this book. <laughs> language is really important to me. I mean, obviously it's important to everybody, but I mean, it's an interest of mine, and I'm sure many of you f feel the same way. I, you know, I was an English major, which you know, according to Garrison Keillor, that makes me a cliché. Um, and studying Shakespeare, studying James Joyce, you know, and I was doing that at 40, you know, because I went back to college, I started college when I was 38. So I was an adult, you know, I had an adult mind, and it wasn't just a kid kind of, it was like, I think you get a lot more out of school. It's the one advantage of dropping out of high school, there aren't a lot of others, but um, <laughs> that college really was interesting to me. And it was, it was you know, discovering an, an interest that I didn't really know I had, but it, I had one professor who, my Shakespeare professor at Cal, who was a typical eccentric professor who he had a specialty which was basically you had to write your essays 
you couldn't take more than one line of a, of a play to write the essay. You had to write your essay about one line or just a part of a line or one word out of a line and write your five to seven pages on that. And it really, really got me into thinking about layers of meaning and trying to understand juxtapositions and the setup, why this word in relation to that word and what's the whole bigger picture, how it related to the whole theme of the play. And, uh, so when I came to write One Breath at a Time, I found myself going through the steps in that way, in a way I'd never done before, looking at each word and becoming really curious about how I could understand this stuff in layered ways. Uh, and it's really, I think, served me well, because I've learned a lot just by asking myself what are the potential meanings of these words. And, and not Because the language of the steps seems uh, kind of uh, self-explanatory. It seems apparent what it means. Made a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understood him. I understand. I'm supposed to get down on my knees and pray for God to fix me or to take care of me. I got it, right? Because that's what it seems to be saying. Well, as I like to point out to people, if, that were the, if we were to take this step literally, it would be the last step. Because if God's taken care of your life, why do you have to do anything else? That should be the end of the steps. Turn it over to God. Okay, God, we're done. The fact that it's really only the beginning of the process in a lot of ways puts the lie to that interpretation. And it points to some completely different meaning to this step, completely different from the idea that somehow I'm giving up my part and that I'm praying to God to just intervene in my life, the intercessionary prayer. See that that's not what is happening here. First of all, what I think is happening in this step is that we're making a commitment to something. We've decided we're really going to do this thing. First of all, that means I'm going to really stay sober. I'm going to work my program. And when I say sober, let's say you know, clean, sober, abstinent, uh, celibate, whatever it is that your addiction is. I, I don't at all mean to narrowly define uh, what I teach to be about alcoholism or even about drugs and alcohol. To make that commitment, that's the thing that, uh, you know, that's what step one is really asking us to do, but uh, step three, it seems to me, is the one where it actually puts it literally, we made a decision. Okay, I am going to do that. Made that commitment. Without that, all the rest of it, without that, we're always in this uh, state of maybe. You know, that there's, uh, they're waiting for the exception to show up. Yeah. I remember a long, early in my recovery being in a meeting where a guy said, geez, you know, I saw there's a new beer that Budweiser has, dry bud or something. And he said, you know, I saw that ad and I thought, I wonder what that tastes like. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, that's none of my business. I love that line. That's none of my business. It's over for me. That's not up for debate. Will I or won't I? I've made that decision. That to me is more important in terms of recovery. That part of the step, much more important than God. You know, 
I think you can throw out the word God. Uh, I don't think the word God is important if it's a problem for you. The question is, what is the step trying to tell us to do? It's trying to say, make a decision, make a commitment, turn our will and our lives over. It's not talking about your entire entirety of your life. This isn't how I understand it. The way I understand it is I'm giving up that addictive side of me, the self-centered side. I'm trying to. You know, doing my best on a daily basis, right? The selfish, the reactive. You know, I'm, I'm trying to make a commitment to live in a new way that's in harmony with my values, the things that I believe in, the things that I think are higher values, who, who I, the person I want to be, that I've always wished I was, or that I used to be, or that I see myself as. I'm going to try to live in harmony with that. You can, you can work the step like that, and, and I think you've got the essence of it. The other piece of it, and, and I don't think I've written or talked about this part of it nearly enough, is the surrender part, which is I do my best and then I accept the results. I don't get into this struggle with the world or with God. Why did things happen this way? The, in the part of the big book where it says, you know, there's nothing wrong. Acceptance is the key to my uh, life today. And I, ha I have that quote in here, and if I go digging for it, I'll never find it. But the, it, it, a very tricky little quote, again, because of, it can be misinterpreted. But the, the principle that the way I get in trouble is when I, one of the ways I get in trouble is when I bang my head against the wall, when I, when I resist what is. There's what is, and then there's what could be. And what is, is must be accepted, unless we want to suffer. What could be, okay, then I can continue to make effort to transform things, to transform myself, to transform my life. But if... I mean, I, 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 for some reason, this image always comes back to my mind in terms of my getting this step, walking across the campus of Santa Monica College to register for a class, for my first class. And I was three years sober. And the fear coming over me. And the walking through the fear. That, to me, was a third step. It was just trusting, like, this is really bad. I really hate this. I really don't want to do this. And I know that if I want to have the life I want to have, that I have to be able to go through this. So I'm going to turn it over. You know, I'm going to trust in this process. And there are so many ways this step can be expressed in that way. But that acceptance part is so important. So let me get into the, then, the, then the central part of the step. Turn my will and my life over to the care of God. The way I understand this is that there are two things that I'm turning over. 
is what it says. I turn my will and my life over. So my will is just my intention. In Buddhism, that's part of the Eightfold Path, right intention. So what I'm, if I'm going to say, let's, uh, let's start from, from the back end a little bit and say, okay, God in this case is, for, let's just say God is the Dharma, and that can include um, you know, mindfulness and, and loving kindness, uh, wisdom, all that stuff. So I'm going to tur- turn my will over. In other words, I'm going to try to live mindfully, lovingly, wisely, that's going to be my intention. Now, with the understanding that my intention is not going to always be fulfilled. So forgiveness is actually built in there. Because if I didn't have to worry about my intention, if I could just turn my life over, then, and somehow it was, I was always there, then I'd, I'd never come up short, so I wouldn't have to forgive myself. If I'm not... If I'm not going to be forgiving myself, though, every time I make a mistake, I'm slapping myself. I'm, you know, I'm beating myself up. So, forgiveness is built in. I turn my will over. That's my intention. I'm going to try. This is, this, these are my ideals. This is how I'd like to live. They don't have to be Buddhist ideals. That's just what I use as a model. They can be any kind of any ideals you want. What are your ideals? What do you want to? How do you want to live? Who do you want to be? And they can change, and they will change, hopefully, over time. Then I turn my life over. So my life is my actual actions. Well, it's one thing to have an intention. It's another thing to fulfill it. That's where you fulfill it on a daily basis, to the best of your ability. You take the actions based on the will. So there are moments when you're going to come up against, well, this is what I think is the right thing to do, but I'm not going to do it. You know? I, can't, I can't bring myself to do it. Um, but you're going to know, oh, I'm not turning it over right now, right? Because <laughs> I just stopped in the middle of the process. So that's where hopefully the power of your will or the power of your intention will carry you through. It, many of the, if we look at the 12-step process, uh, intention and action uh, is actually built into uh, several of the pairs of steps. Well, the, it's built into step three. It's built into step six and seven. We were entirely ready to have God remove our defective character, and then step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. It's built into eight and nine. We made a list of the people we were harmed and became willing to make amends. Nine, m- directly made, made direct amends. So th- there's a wisdom in here that the founders of AA understood, probably intuitively. I don't know if they got it, that they really knew what they were doing exactly. It doesn't matter. That their, that action is divided into two things. There's intention and then there's action. And this is exactly what the Buddha said. He said that, in fact, he said that what informs the results of your actions is the intention behind it. So he said, before you even act, Look at your intention. Why are you doing this? Which is an excellent way to watch your selfishness, to watch your addictiveness. Am I doing this to satisfy my addictive craving or my self-centered desires? Am I doing this to further uh, good in the world? And, you know, okay. You know, none of us are perfect, I hope. Uh, 
So it's not like, oh, wait, there's some selfishness in there. Okay, naturally. I mean, I already told you that, you know, I want you to give me money tonight, so, you know, <laughs> my intention isn't pure. You know. uh, I do this for a living. So does that mean that I shouldn't teach this because it's not my intention isn't 100% just to give it all away? No, I think that's foolishness. That's, that's um, idealism, which is for young people. <laughs> But we, you know, we look and see, you know, are we using, I mean, for instance, let's just put the example on the Dharma teacher. You know, am I just promoting myself? Is that my, you know, am I like turning, trying to turn myself into the big guru? You know, I remember there was that guy, I think he was called Rama in the 80s. He would be on the back of like some of these magazines and he'd have like, a, he had this big hair thing and big glowing, you know, he died of an overdose, I think. And it, well, I thought it was in his pool in Long Island, but yeah, he drowned, right? But yeah, he had a little, he had some problems. Anyway, I don't mean to pick on him. The, <laughs> but he was sort of that example of like the self-promoting guru, you know, and it's like, yeah, you can turn your spirituality into business. Um, and, and then, I, to me, I mean, you know, it's not for me to judge, but if, if I was in that place, I'd feel like, okay, I've crossed a line, you know, what's my intention? So we watch our intention. What's, what's happening with our intention? And then we watch our actions. We try to fulfill that. Nowhere in there was some being up in the sky who's intervening in our lives. You know, that we have to pray to and hope, oh, please be nice to me. You know? <laughs> you know, it's not about that. You know, it's not. And, and my sincere belief is that in traditions that rely on intercessionary prayer, that when that's done in a sincere and authentic way, that it's a powerful practice and that it's a meaningful practice. I don't think that it's not, you know, foxhole prayers. It's people who really are praying sincerely out of their heart. You know, the prayer, a prayer that comes out of the heart, if it's even for yourself or for another person, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, I think it's a, you know, my opinion is that it's a delusion to think that there is some being out there that's going to intervene and do stuff. But um, at the same time, I think having your consciousness uh, focused on something very positive uh, can have a very positive effect in the world. Who knows how that works? Uh, It's not important. Um, because part of this process, this coming to believe, step two, and turning it over, step three, is a certain accepting that we really don't know it all. Uh, This is one thing that I'll agree with the 12-step literature, that we have this, a certain arrogance, intellectual arrogance, particularly in the modern world with our scientific viewpoint, that we know it all. And you really, all you have to do is look up in the sky at night and realize that you don't know it all. There's a lot of stuff going on out there. We don't know what it is. You, know, you can bet that there's other consciousness in other places. How, no, uh, certainly one of the great questions, and maybe 
science will figure this out, you know, is what is consciousness and where is consciousness? You know, they pretty much seem to have decided that there's no place in the brain that you can say consciousness resides. Um, so there, there are mysteries, and, and we don't have to... Uh, so, and, and I think that part of, our, uh, part of what this, the steps are asking us to do is to suspend disbelief. Or not even suspend, suspend, suspend disbelief, but to suspend belief. <laughs> suspend our opinions better than beliefs. You know, one of the things that the Buddha says is required for enlightenment is to let go of views and opinions. <laughs> yeah, good luck, right? <laughs> but this is one of the things that kind of get, uh, we start to see as we start to watch our minds, we start to see all the stuff that our mind makes up. And if you're paying attention with mindfulness, you start to see how much of it is just blah, 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 blah. It's just your, your mind wanting, it's essentially your mind wanting to control reality to con, or to contain reality, to know. One of the desires, if you start to note, note desire and aversion in your practice, one of the desires is the desire to know. You want to know stuff. And people get all wrapped up in wanting to know. Again, the Buddha was like, you know, it's really not that important to know a lot of stuff. There's a wonderful sutta where he's walking through the forest with some monks. He picks up a handful of leaves. He says, what's more, the, hand, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in this forest? The monks go, oh, the leaves in the forest. He says, yes, and the amount that I know compared to the amount that I teach, is like the leaves in the forest to the leaves in my hand. But you only need to know this much to become enlightened. And that's really all that needs to happen. You know, he, according to legend, you know, the Buddha pursued uh, his fully enlightened state for many, many lifetimes and perfected himself and became a world teacher. So a Buddha isn't just an enlightened being. A Buddha is also a world teacher who has this, you know, again, according to legend, you know, so almost, virtually omniscience or whatever, like very woo-hoo. <laughs> but he says, you know, that's not necessary in, to, to have freedom to be... Um, to be free from suffering, to be enlightened, to be happy. Um, just, you know, here, here's a nice path, you know, and he gives this such um, wonderfully put together teachings that um, are really all we need. So it's another thing to notice you know, what your mind is doing in terms of what you feel like as if you need to know before you can do this, or you can, you know, practice meditation, or before you can do the 12 steps. Well, I have to, I don't believe in God, so I can't do this step. Okay. Is that true? You know, I mean, views and opinions, you know. It's, um, one of the things that I, I did at one point when I was writing this book was I went through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I wrote down, every name and every reference to God or higher power. 
and it was so diverse. The, some of them sounded very kind of Christian and uh, uh, kind of limited to me, and and some of them were, were kind of like, "Whoa, wow, that's interesting," you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, that oh, sounds almost Buddhist. So, again, you sort of if you really look closely, you see they're not really saying one thing. They're you know, they're trying to have this wide open door, I think, I think in the 12 step anyway. So um, there's a lot, you know, when it comes to defining higher power from a Buddhist perspective, this is, as I say, really what this book is about. I've, I've tried to give you sort of a taste of that, a sense of that, of what it might mean, the Dharma, how mindfulness is a power, how loving kindness is a power, how speech, right speech, is a power. Right intention is a power. These are all very powerful things. The truth of impermanence is very powerful. It completely tra- changes you. It makes you old and die. <laughs> That's how powerful it is. Turning your will and your life over to those things, or putting it another way, c- living in harmony with those powers, rather than trying to control things, but saying, oh, how can I live in harmony with that? How can I be more mindful? How can I be more loving? How can I accept change? Can I do that? Where am I resisting change? And how am I creating suffering for myself? Where am I caught up in my own selfishness rather than having a skillful intention? And every one of these... Every one of the big clues as to whether you're living in harmony with the Dharma or with God, or Dharma God, as I call, it, <laughs> is when you're suffering, when you're in pain. Very often, it's because you're fighting against the truth. You're trying to do it your way or your self-centered way, and or or you're reacting to. Oh, I don't like. It. I don't want it to be that way. Um, which is not a reason to beat yourself up because you're doing it wrong. You know, it's just to see, oh, you know, the pull to be, whether it's addicted or reactive or self-centered, it's instinctive and it's deeply conditioned. So it's, it's nature and it's nurture. It's conditioned in us. And when we become addicted, it becomes deeply conditioned. And then one day we decide we're going to turn it off. Not so fast, you know. That's why there's 12 steps, not just one. It's a process. And it's a process that doesn't, you know, you go through the 12 steps. Again, you're not done. Not so fast. You know, it's, it's a... It's an ongoing process. These things that have been deeply conditioned to us, into us, many of them will be with us for our lives, for our whole lives. They'll be our companions. Ah, there you are again. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, Mara is the tempter. Or it's kind of the devil of Buddhism. And, and the, when the Buddha is striving for his enlightenment, he gets attacked by Mara, by lust and greed and, and um, doubt, uh, by anger, all the normal things that people experience in life. He becomes enlightened. And sort of, you sort of think, okay, he's done with Mara. 
But no, in the text, Mara keeps coming around throughout his life. And Mara shows up, and what the Buddha says when he sees Mara is, I see you, Mara. That's it. I see you. And as soon as Mara is seen, Mara slinks away. Oh, caught again. So it's not that we get to the point where all these habitual ways of being just never show up again. They just don't have the same power. And we start to become more wise about them. And so, that, oh, right. Oh, I want to drink. Okay. I'm not going to drink, you know. Uh, it, it just, it's it really this power of awareness, power of intention, of commitment, uh, really can transform our, the whole process. So there's a few minutes left. If there's any thoughts or questions. Clarification. Okay. These things that are deeply conditioned, nature and nurture, are they with us for a long time? So, what? How did you characterize those? Those are the are the those are the fight. The, the yeah, <laughs> I mean, I list. You know, I, 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 I this is just a bunch of things that I've thought of over the years of as kind of when we say I'm powerless, or uh, that we're kind of talking about the the little the little me, basically the the ego me. So it's. Uh, my addictiveness, my self-centeredness, my reactivity. I think of those, I guess those are the main ones to me. Uh, the addictiveness is that craving. The self-centeredness is the, yeah, it's all about me, come on. And the reactivity is, the, is kind of, the. a lot of times it's the opposite of the craving. It's, oh, I don't like that, oh, get away. Uh, but it can also trigger, the reaction can also be a trigger of craving. So it can, that can also be addictive. But those are the things that I think, when we're unconscious, those are the things that are running us to a great extent. And those are the things that lead to addiction, that lead to suffering in our lives, lead to harming others in our lives. Um, yeah, on step three, on step three, I don't think it's on. Yeah, it is. Is it? Is it yeah. on? Oh. On step three, um, uh, as we understand him, or it, yeah. as we understand him, I think that is like the most important part of the entire step because that's the part that allows you to believe whatever it is that you want to believe. Yeah. Period. Right. That's why it was thrown in there in the first place, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah. Well, I... I I will say that what I think is really important about that part of the step, I think that it may be the critical part of the steps that allowed the 12-step program to survive as long as it has. Uh, that without that, the program itself might have died out. So that what I, is what I think is really important. I'm not of the school that says you can make the doorknob your higher power. I mean, you can if you want, but... I don't see how that's going to help you very much, you know. I mean, I, I, want, I want to have a higher power or an understanding of God that makes some sense, that I can make, say, oh yeah, okay, this thing has power and I need to work with it in order to be taken care of. So I'm, I'm not, 
willing to accept the absolute broadest you can have any, I mean, you can have any higher power you want, but I'm not sure it's going to help you very much at a certain point if it's the doorknob. But has anybody ever had the doorknob for a higher power? <laughs> have you ever, you've heard that, right? Some of you have heard that thing. Yeah. I just want to slap people and stuff like that, but I don't because I'm a Buddhist, you know, so I just slap them in my mind. Anyway, I have the microphone, so okay. it's handed to me. But, uh, Very good. <clears throat> I'm um, <clears throat> one who has struggled with uh, the whole concept of God oftentimes in my life. And um, it's interesting because I'm married to a woman who's an Orthodox Christian and very religious, and I for years have resisted, actually, even you know while we were married, looking at that path. And only recently I've grown, uh, I've gained a kind of an openness, and um, it's an openness just to look. I, um, and just sort of, I go and I listen, and I talk to the people there. And what's interesting about it is that it's actually, um, they um, have a very different way of approaching this whole thing about God. They mm -hmm. um, actually, they feel as though that as long as you have a belief which rises in the thinking mind, that that's idol worship. And that's not really the mm -hmm. relationship with God. Mm -hmm. They talk about, in fact, the Greeks have a word for it. They call it the logismi. They, mm -hmm. The seed of all temptations mm -hmm. is inside the thinking mind. They go into the noose, which is the heart, the mind of the heart. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's really intriguing. They talk about how you can't say what God is, mm -hmm. that you can only say what God does. I mean, they definitely talk about God all mm -hmm. the time. But um, the, what I find intriguing about that is it really is a kind of, um, not that I subscribe to it, but it is a release. It is seeing that the oldest form of Christianity mm -hmm. actually has a way of releasing the thinking mind mm -hmm. from the position of dominating what we believe and what we don't believe. And some people have actually said that, you know, this is an attribute that's very close to um, Buddhism, mm -hmm. you know, that there's a lot of um, uh, similarities. And uh, so I think it's interesting. I'm just offering yeah. that as a... Yeah. yeah, and, you know, one of the things that I have to acknowledge is that when I'm talking about, I'll just say Dharma God, I'm completely ignoring what people talk about when they're talking about kind of the mystery or creation or what's behind everything, the closest to that would be nirvana. Uh, but um, the reason I take the approach I take is because we live in the culture we live in, which is an intellectual culture, and will reject things on intellectual grounds. And so if we don't have an intellectually satisfying or you know, workable concept, most people can't accept it. Um, I'm not sure this is so much about what you're talking about, but it's interesting that Stephen Batchelor, you may be familiar with, brilliant Buddhist scholar, we could say, but also Buddhist iconoclast and you know, calls himself an, a Buddhist atheist, which doesn't make any sense to me. But um, He says, the Buddha was not a mystic, which 
uh, is in some ways a radical statement. Um, but what he's getting at is that the Buddha wasn't really talking about, I don't, I'll say he wasn't interested in, at least in his teachings, in exploring mystery. He was really interested in, in exploring reality. And his main question was, what causes suffering and how can I end it? All, all the rest was kind of, when people would come to him and talk about, well, what, where does everything start? and what's, what's the beginning of the universe? He would say, thinking about that doesn't help you, which is a little bit of what you're saying. You know, that's just another desire to know. And you won't figure it out. So what you'll do is you'll, uh, and B Bill Wilson talks about this uh, in the 12 and 12, that people will get caught up in the big questions as a way to avoid dealing with the problem here, which is, I got a little drinking issue, you know. <laughs> well, I know, you know, I know what's God. Yeah, that's what I got to sort. Until I know what God is, I'm not going to stop drinking. It's, that's kind of, uh, you know, so, uh, Yeah. It's, there's a lot of uh, stuff. I don't know what I'm saying. I should have stopped it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah anyway, thank you. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Car I've, you thank know, you. Karen Armstrong talks about some of this stuff yeah. too. Karen Armstrong. It's interesting. Really you know, it's uh, there's agreements and there's not, and there's stuff that doesn't agree. Uh, if you read Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who's another Buddhist scholar, he's very. Um, clear from his viewpoint that, you know, the perennial philosophy, uh, which is Aldous Huxley, and uh, I, I'm not sure where it began, but maybe William James is part of that, but the belief that all religions have the same foundation principles, Tanisar Bhikkhu is like, not so much. You know, Buddhism doesn't, and so he takes that apart in kind of, uh, a, again, kind of a Buddhist skeptic, or not, not skeptical of Buddhism, but skeptical of the kind of trying to universalize everybody should just get along and agree you know there's there are some places where there's disagreement um, which is fine I mean to me what's important is uh, are you you know being kind are you being wise you know are you what are you doing how are you operating in the world are you harming yourself are you harming others are you helping yourself are you helping others and then how, how it unfolds, you know, or the form it takes isn't so important. So, so we are actually out of time. Um, and I, I hope that this was, uh, you know, satisfying to some extent tonight. Step three is something that, as I say, I don't think can be... C completed in a single night. It could be uh, explored more. I hope you'll do that on your own. I also just want to point out that for this week I'm suggesting that you do some work uh, around inventory, which is step four and step five. Um, and you know, look at these ideas, uh, the kind of Buddhist approaches to inventory. And then finally, uh, particularly uh, look at a positive inventory so that there's some balancing uh, going on. Um, and if possible, to connect with another clean, sober 
person, someone working a program this week, um, as part of your commitment to your own recovery and your own path. Um, even though, according to this clock, we are three minutes late, I still would like to do one short minute of dedication of merit. So just taking a breath, settling back for a moment. And as we work with step three, certainly one of the principles that we can turn our will and our life over to is the principle of giving it away, of being of service, or in Buddhist terms, of sharing the merit. So may our efforts to practice, to grow, to deepen our recovery together, may these efforts be of benefit to all those who are dear to us and ultimately to all beings. May all beings be free from the suffering caused by addictive behaviors. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.